1: Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. We are back again after a quite lengthy break due to the World Cup. Um, But before we get into the football and the, the, the positives of Albion's recent run of form, I do want to just mention and also add the condolences of myself and Pete to a very, very sad passing of our club doctor, Julian Whiddison. Um Anybody who saw Jed Wallace's post-match interview last night saw visibly how much he meant to the players. Jed got very emotional on Sky Sports last night and... It, it's it's a tragedy. The um, the the tribute in the dugout was was very nice. I believe there will be more tributes as well this weekend at the at the Rotherham game and Pete i think you and i just want to say that um that you know we echo the thoughts of jed wallace and also echo the thoughts of uh, of of jed wallace in terms of you know the the tragedy that's happened in solihull and the young boy that's fighting for his life obviously everybody ourselves at the pod uh, wish him all the best and we we offer our condolences to the widowson family
0: yeah well say so chris i can only echo that um both very sad um, bits of news
1: and yeah,
0: can only offer our condolences to the families affected.
1: Of course, the players did give a fitting tribute to the to the dock on the pitch, Pete, and it's now four wins on the spin. I mean, to be honest, you flashback to Carlos Corbrand's first game, when we openly admit he experimented quite a lot in that game, multiple different formations, uh, changed quite a lot of players around. We looked understandably disjointed in that game, but that's as you would expect. And then you look at what had gone before and the run of form that we'd had leading up to that game, obviously slightly interspersed by the r- win at Reading, but everything else all around that game, uh, all around... The the fixtures either side of that game were you know pretty awful really the performances generally speaking. So could you honestly see this run coming from from anywhere? If you if I flash you back to the the the, the morning of the first of no uh, first of November I believe it was when we played Blackpool at home uh Corbrand's first win when we absolutely scrapped and dug that one out. Could you possibly conceive that that was going to turn into? into this kind of a run of form, because not, not only have we won, won four games, Pete, but, you know, OK, Blackpool was a scrappy one against the team we would expect to win. But then you go to QPR and win. That is a big result away from home. You go to Sunderland and win, who, who had tonked Millwall the week before. And in between those two, you've also got a win against Stoke, who... Whilst not in a great vein of form, we all know what our record is like against Stoke down the years. We're not just winning games, Pete. We're winning big, big games.
0: Auburn's done brilliantly since he's come in. And it seems to be that he's trying to build on a solid defence first and, you know, kind of win games from uh, clean sheets and, and keeping the opposition out rather than just, you know, going all out attack and trying to outscore them. I think last night you could see that initially in the first half we were kind of we didn't want to commit too many men forwards too early. We didn't want to give away that first goal, and we kind of looked a bit flat. Um,
1: Which, 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 let's be honest, was the Achilles' heel of Steve Bruce, wasn't it? That that, conceding that early goal. Everybody seems to paint Steve Bruce as this defensive coach. I mean, there is a bit of I wish about that from his time at the Albion. Like if he'd been a bit more defensive, he, he he might have done a bit better.
0: I can't remember how many times it was, but I think it was something like eight or nine times under Bruce. I think we, we conceded, got into
1: double figures by the time he left, mate.
0: Was it of goals that were conceded within the first 15 minutes? Oh, in
1: the first 15? I thought you meant conceding the first goal. Yeah, I, oh. I think it was. I think you're right. I think it was about eight times in the first 15 minutes and 11 times conceding the first goal. I could be wrong on that one. If anybody wants to call me out on the stats, feel free.
0: But anyway, it was something ridiculous like that. And if you keep conceding the first goal, especially in the first 15 minutes, you're definitely not setting yourself up to, to win points. A lot of games are won just by a single goal. So if you give yourself a a goal, well, if you give your opposition a goal head start within 15 minutes, then you're not in a, a good way for the rest of the game. But I think Corbran wants to build on a solid defence.
1: and. But winger- that being said, Pete, we did concede the first goal. And yet, and and Sky were very quick to flash up the stats about how well Sunderland have done when they've scored the first goal, and how badly we've done when we've conceded the first goal. And yet, we did what we didn't do earlier in the season, and not only got back in the game, but got because we got back in the game to get draws a lot of the time. We got back into the game and won it. And I don't know about you, Pete, but in that second half, I almost had an eerie calmness. Over me in terms of, or no, not calmness. My missus would strongly dispute that the way because uh, uh, because frankly, I've nearly got a broken ankle this morning from smashing the the coffee table when the second went in. But um, but but uh, but an eerie confidence that I don't normally have watching the Albion. Where I thought as as soon as the second half started and we started getting in behind, particularly down that right hand side, I thought we'll get something out of this.
0: We looked on top and. In a lot of games this season, I don't think we've always looked on top. I think we've always kind of looked a bit um, like the game's in a balance, even if we got a lot of the ball that this opposition could easily break on us. But I think we looked solid um, as well as... Lack
1: of control.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, that's what we've looked like previously. And, and last night uh, against Sunderland, the game looked under control and we looked like we could consistently create chances whilst not looking open to counter-attacks. Um, I think that was partly down to uh, the midfield sitting in and not overcommitting into the attack and letting players like Wallace and Phillips and uh, DK when he came on do the attacking and, and get into threatening positions. And Tom Rogic, of course, he had a, a very good game when he came on and arguably helped change the game. So I think we looked in control and... Yeah, I was similar to you that I kind of felt like we were getting ourselves back into it. And I think Corbran felt it as well, especially when we scored after we got the first one. I think he saw that the game was actually there for the taking rather than just sitting in and being happy that we've worked our way back to, to get a point.
1: You mentioned the, the central midfield there, Pete. I was, uh, I know uh, we've, we've said many times that, um, I am a, a bit more fascinated with the average position data than you are, not least. Uh, you, and I understand why you're not quite as in love with it as I am because, um, uh, because it only, it only records where the players have touched the ball rather than actually their average position. So it's not, it's not like GPS data or anything like that. But it was noticeable when I looked at it that actually Malumbi and, Yakoslu, or Malumbu, as they called him when he got substituted um, against Sunderland, um, that that they were actually as deep as the two fullbacks for for most of the game. It's interesting that that the and the, the, that's worth mentioning that the two fullbacks were relatively high. But it it but it's it's interesting that we can play with two defenders so deep and yet still offer a threat under Corbran. Sorry, two central midfielders so deep, and still offer a threat under Corbran.
0: Well, we didn't... I think in the first half, we were trying to build up a bit more centrally than we had done under Bruce. Under Bruce, we were very much just build up through the wings, progress the ball down the wings. Um, That's where we've probably got our strongest progressive passer in Townsend at left back. Um, So let him kind of just pass the ball forwards and then work out what to do after that. I think uh, against Sunderland, we kind of wanted to do that, but also try and play through the midfielders, which uh, to me, for me, it didn't work particularly well. I think we don't have the profile of midfielders to do that. There were some sloppy touches and poor passes and they just didn't look...
1: Credit to Sunderland though, Pete. W- w- I mean, they were all over us like a rush. I thought that I did think their press was excellent first half. I don't know whether they ran out of steam a little bit second half, but um, I thought first half. The, the, I was I-, I was marveling a little bit at how hard they were working in there.
0: Yeah, they were excellent with the pressing and made it very hard for us to press them. We tried to early on in the first half, and they just played out relatively easily with one twos and. A good movement once they've passed the ball, and well, speaking of the one twos, that's what happened for the goal, wasn't it? That it was a one two in the final third out wide, and was it Diallo Diallo got in behind Townsend, dude, fallen asleep, and and Townsend tried to make up for it and made a stupid error. But
1: I mean, he's he's a player, Pete, that we've defended numerous times on this pod because I think he gets unfair stick at times. I have to say, I've got no defence for him there. He, it, it, there, there is no way he should be making a challenge. Well, he's got Peter's covering. It's very hard for... Diallo's got very little of the goal to shoot at, or he tries to pull it across into a crowded penalty area. For me, Townsend's got to let him go once he's got the wrong side.
0: I agree with that. Um, you can't make a tackle from behind in the penalty area because... As soon as the player feels any contact from behind in the penalty area, they're going to go down, and you're not going to get to the ball before the before you get to the man if you're coming from behind. So it was, I think he was just desperate to make up for falling asleep from that one-two, and kind of wasn't measured in what he was doing, and compounded just, it. Yeah, exactly. And well, luckily, we came back and and won the game, so it's not highlighted. But, as but much.
1: before that, Pete, before that. Alex Palmer keeps us in it because I think, I, 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 you know, as much as I've got this eerie confidence about Albion at the moment where I, I, I do trust this team all of a sudden, if that goes 2-0, I don't think we, you know, I, I don't think we go, we, we come back. And that is truly is a quite brilliant save, isn't it? Because it's, that is, to get off his line that fast and then to get a strong arm out to make sure he blocks that shot from Pritchard, I think is, is, is phenomenal.
0: Yeah, it was a, a brilliant save. It kind of, it looked like he, he came out early, but then he kind of delayed his movement to stop it and and then made himself as big as possible and just kind of, he didn't make it easy for the attacker to just put it into the space that if Palmer commits early, you know, he's only covering so much of the goal and the striker just puts it into the empty space after that. But he kind of delayed and before he committed with his final movement and that seemed to be what kept us in it and... Brilliant save! Overall, had a a decent game, and since he's come in, he's been fairly solid.
1: Well, I was just gonna uh, just gonna dwell on him slightly there for a minute there, Pete, because I I think I think you and I are both in, of the same mindset on Alex Palmer that we like him, but we're not a hundred percent convinced on him. He's it, it, a, a, he has does seem to have a strange little error in him. You, you, I mean, you look at the Millwall away goal, and you think. What 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 are you thinking, Alex? But there's there's been other goals since he's come in where 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 I've thought you could have got that. Yeah, you know, you could you could you either could have come off your line quickly, or you could have got down to that. But there's some things that I love about him, and one of them is he he just seems to move his feet really quickly. He seems to react to things ever so well. You think of the the one on his debut against Preston, where he where where he just. Before we went 1-0 down where he got, got across to it. It's just brilliant, brilliant movement of his feet. And that again last night, that, that's against Sunderland. That's all come from Palmer reacting extremely quickly. And that's something I don't think we saw from Button people like like to tell me i'm 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 har- i was i was harsh on button i think most <laughs> i think most fans have kind of come round a little bit to the idea that maybe i wasn't being quite so harsh on david button anymore but i when when i start saying things like i think he could have reacted quicker to um the goal against birmingham for example the 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 one in the first half And people are like, no, 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 he's done what he can do. When you see that from Palmer getting off his line so quickly there, it does throw into stark contrast the things Button wasn't doing, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. The other thing that Button wasn't doing was just keeping out long shots and um, making what should be relatively simple saves. I think you can look at the data, and if you look at a metric that takes into consideration... Um, the quality of the shots that they're facing, um, you can say that Palmer has prevented 1.5 goals since he's been in goal for us this season. So 0. 0.14 per 90. And then if you go and look at David Button and compare the two, um, well, David Button's prevented minus 6.19 goals or minus 0. 0.5 per 90. So he's, he's letting Six, in more 6. goals.
1: 6.9? So, yeah, so he's, he's basically, he, he was he was seven goals worse off than he should have been.
0: 6.19, yeah, so just over
1: oh, six, 6.19, sorry, so six goals.
0: Yeah, just over six goals and you could expect the average shot stopper to be. And Alex Palmer's prevented 1.5 goals more than you could expect the average shot stopper to be. So, you know, basically Palmer's going fairly well above average. Um,
1: That's basically but, your 12 points right there, isn't it?
0: Well, it it definitely make up for... A fair number of the points. Um,
1: obviously, it depends in which games he's
0: he's letting the simple chances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but
1: yeah, but <laughs> but given but given that up until the point at which we lost um, to Bristol City, that we hadn't lost by more than a single goal, I think you can fairly reasonably say that that would have made us up a good chunk of points.
0: Yeah, and if you're looking for to be in the playoff places, pushing for automatic places, you can't have a goalkeeper that's performing that poorly on such an important metric for goalkeepers obviously is that you could say it's the number one job keeping the ball out the the back of the net and this metric basically measures that in comparison to an average goalkeeper and Palmer has been pretty good on that and Alex uh David Button sorry has been very poor so if Palmer can continue, um, then yeah, I'm definitely happy with him in goal for the rest of the season. Um, and as a relatively inexperienced goalkeeper, you can expect him to improve with um, getting experience at a level he's not had before.
1: Yeah, and I suppose as well, Pete, if he can actually continue to do that, then it solves a bit of a problem in the sense that we can let Josh Griffiths have the rest of the season on uh, on loan at Portsmouth. Because you're not, you're not going to bring Josh Griffiths back to, to to sit on the bench instead of David Button, are you?
0: I personally am not sure Josh Griffiths is quite ready for Championship football. From what I've heard, he's not, and what I've seen in the days, he's not having the best season. He's not performing as well as he did in the previous season that he was on loan. But you know, of course, he's still very young, so I think he's probably best staying put and just keep getting that match experience, um, keep getting those games under his belt, and. He'll continue to improve, and he's still very, very young. So I don't think we need to rush him in.
1: No, agreed. And going back to the the, the first half, Pete. I mean, it's worth saying we we were well off the pace. Uh, I mean, Palmer has saved us. We were probably a little bit fortunate to go in at time one nil down. You look at. The Sunderland and pretty much all their shots came in the first half. Pretty much all our shots on target, at least came in the, it came in the second half. We didn't show up in that first half. It was ponderous. It was pass, 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 pass across the back four. We were going absolutely nowhere with the ball. We were suffering to, to, to the Sunderland press. They, uh, they, they were having all the chances, all the XG in that, in in that first half. Basically, we were dominated first half and it was a role reversal in the second half. But was that, to a certain degree, a little bit inevitable, given that they played the week before against Millwall and obviously the Sunderland-Millwall was the only game last week and the rest of the championship starts started again this weekend just gone. Is it a little bit unfair that, that, that Millwall and Sunderland, I know it didn't necessarily benefit Millwall too much because they lost to Sunderland and then they drew with Wigan on Saturday which is probably a game they'd expect to win but... It, is it a bit unfair that they they got a week's head start on everybody else? I mean, you wouldn't it, 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 even if, say, a team was in European qualifiers or something like that. You wouldn't you wouldn't let them start the Premier League season a week before all the other teams, would you?
0: They'd definitely be um, more match sharp and probably ready for the the next game because they have had that um, experience. Obviously, we had a friendly, but it's it's very different to playing a, a league game. So maybe that is what kind of um, led to us being a bit flat in that first half and taking a while to to warm up. But, yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me because we we're talking about this off air and I was hadn't really got the grasp of whatever, what's actually happened because essentially everyone's got that game to make up. But we've got ours on um, uh, a Wednesday night before yeah, Christmas.
1: Wednesday night, Wednesday the 21st, I think it is.
0: yeah. But so between now and Christmas, we've got two games, um, one Saturday and one Wednesday. But if you look at Sunderland, they've only got the Saturday game. So it it doesn't really make sense to me why they wouldn't be able to play their game at the same time as we do on that same Wednesday night. Um, And then everyone would be starting up again at the same time and have the same level of match sharpness, match fitness. And just, yeah, I I mean, like the example you gave, it's, this world cup race essentially been like a start of a new season um with that because of that long break so you wouldn't let a team start the season early because of
1: well exactly it's like it's it's like say for example bournemouth and fulham saying well, we've had all our players back so we'll play this weekend and everybody else starts on boxing day you just you wouldn't allow it to happen would you
0: no it, it doesn't make any sense to me considering that it if they had been the only team to have that game that they've missed, then it would maybe make a bit more sense to me because at that point you kind of are seeing, right, where can we squeeze these games in? But if it's a whole round of fixtures that needs to be played, then why not play them altogether?
1: Yeah, I mean, if it, it, genuinely, if it had been Coventry you could have understood it because Cov are still at a, a, a least a game behind everybody else. They're two behind most teams. So if it had been Cov, you could have understood it. But yet again, for me, it's mismanagement from the EFL. I just think it's really, really poor. I, I, I haven't seen anywhere a genuine reason why they had to play it this week rather than next week and, and couldn't have restarted on the same weekend as everybody else. I mean, look, we, and the good thing is we can say it now, Pete, because it doesn't look bitter. Because we've won the game two one, but I think it's unfair and I think it's mismanagement by by um, uh, by the EFL. And uh, as I say, you can I think you can say this because Millwall haven't won either of their two games and Sunderland haven't won the second one, so it doesn't look like anybody's having any sour grapes. But I do th- I do think it's it's out of order, and I think I think the league need to need to look at themselves a little bit there, but. To be honest, they probably won't, will they? Because uh, because because they just because they just don't. Um, to be honest with you, moving back to uh, to the game, Pete. And look, in that first half, the one major positive was that um, Jed Wallace was putting in some some brilliant balls in in the first half without uh, without a real target. Um Brandon Thomas Asante was manfully trying to get on the end of them, but not without any with any real success. But my goodness me, you look at the two goals. What a difference it makes when you give Jed Wallace something to hit. Because I, I, I mean, the criticism of much of the season has been a tactic has been crossing to no one. But you sign Jed Wallace, you're gonna get crosses. <laughs> I mean, that's what he does. I think I think the status he's put putting more crosses than anybody else in the division. And yet, and then you give him a target. First goal, low ball, lovely pulled back low ball into, uh, I mean, I know it's an attempted shot in the initial, um, period as it breaks to DK and then DK holds it up and back for Rogic. And we'll talk about Rogic's goal in a little bit more depth, um, in, in a few minutes time, because I love it. Absolutely love it. And then the second one, by the way, Lee Hendry go, I'm going to put my neck on the line and say that ball wasn't out of play. Lee, anybody with, anybody with eyes could see that ball wasn't out of play. It was well in. Um, But but, uh, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful ball. And again, DK to hit. You put DK's physical presence into the middle of that penalty area and it transforms Jed Wallace's game, doesn't it, Pete?
0: Yeah, and I think, like you say with Wallace, you know you're going to get crosses, but you're also going to get High quality crosses. He puts the ball into great areas. That one in the first half for Thomas Asanti, where he just couldn't stretch enough to to get the ball, was a a, was a perfect cross, really. Um, and had DK been on for that one, he probably would have got to it because he's you know a little bit taller, probably a little bit more explosive, um, and just probably a bit better movement. He might have made that move a little bit earlier, but you know you are going to get quality from. From Jed, and if you've got the right striker in the box, then he's going to score goals from it. He doesn't necessarily have to be the tallest striker. Um, he needs good movement first, and he needs to be able to finish. And the good thing about D- Dara DK is that his movement is generally very good in the box. His finishing has been excellent. He's massively overperformed his expected goals in uh, well in his whole career, which might even out but it's you know it's very promising signs um and he's got a physical presence he's got height um you know he's built like a heavyweight boxer and he's very quick on the ground as well so
1: and he knows how to use his body as well Pete because what I noticed about that first goal is just it's that I think it's his right arm just locks the defender in place says you're not coming across me and when you when you look at the real the the best strikers the best ones with their backs to goal they can all do that can't they it's not just it's not enough to just be big and strong you've got you've got to know how to use your body so that so, so that you lock the defender in place and they can't go anywhere
0: yeah and i mean that's the case for any striker that wants to be able to link the play even if they're not the biggest if you can use your body well then it's sometimes better than being really strong and I mean if you've got both of those attributes then it's going to be very very difficult for a defender to kind of nip in front of you and, and win that ball so he's excellent at protecting the ball and Mark that's what Fortuna he showed that.
1: was always a master at that wasn't he I mean Marco wasn't it wasn't a giant of a man he you know he was reasonably tall and strong but he wasn't he he wasn't massive but in terms of just using his body he was a master at it wasn't he?
0: yeah and even someone like Shane long was i mean obviously he was strong, but he definitely wasn't particularly tall and but he used his body's well, body well and as well as as well as having that massive leap you know it made him quite a useful player to be able to hold the ball up um so yeah but to be honest d k's got a he's a very very good player if we can keep him fit because he can be a target for those crosses, he can hold the ball up. But he can also run in behind, especially on counterattacks. If you've got DK on counterattacks, um, you know, he'll run in behind and he'll carry the ball. He can almost do it on himself when you're counterattacking. So if, he, if we can keep him fit, touch wood, you know, he's going to score a lot of goals because he can score them in such a variety of ways, even though we look like a team that seems to only know how to create in one way, which is from Wallace's crossing.
1: Yeah, and... I mean he's come on for half an hour pete and he's got he's got a goal and a, a goal and an assist and i mean what what's that going to do for his confidence as well it's it's just going to be absolutely phenomenal for him i mean whether whether he comes back into the starting eleven it's hard to know but what but one thing I would say about Corbran is as we've said before, he seems quite unemotional in the way he picks his teams he picks he picks horses for courses. He picks he he picks teams that he thinks are going to win games rather than players that he feels he has some sort of duty to. So I think DK will start some games. I think Brandon Thomas Asante will start others. Uh, maybe Grant a little bit centre forward, but I mean uh, I'm sure Corbrand knows enough about Grant to know that that's not his best not his best position. But I think I think he will. He will rotate them. I don't think it will be that DK will become the first name on the team sheet because I I, I honestly don't think there is a first name on on Carlos corbran's team sheet, is there? I think I, I think ev- every everyone is expendable if he doesn't think it's the right game for them. Except except maybe Wallace. Actually, I, I, I think I think I think Jed's maybe the one.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be looking to start a game without Jed Wallace on the pitch. To be honest, but. Apart with the rest of them, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that and we saw in the second half that if we do want to try and be less maybe a little bit less secure defensively and um, against counter-attacks but have more ability on the ball in midfield then we can drop John Swift deeper as to into one of the deeper line midfielders um, because we saw him get on the ball a lot, just take it off the centre-backs and play forward, and he's probably the best midfielder at the club. In terms of doing that, the rest of them, Mulumbi, Livermore and Yacuzhulu, aren't really great ball-playing midfielders. So if we want someone to be able to do that, then John Swift's probably the man. Um, it's, you're just probably sacrificing a bit of that defensive stability, which is you know why we did it in the second half when we needed the goals and we'd already conceded. So Corbrandt's adaptable. And he's not stuck to one team sheet, and he's probably willing to use players maybe in different roles within games, like we saw with Swift. Um, well,
1: well, not just Swift, Pete, but I mean, and this is this is one point I wanted to pick up on was it wasn't it, he didn't just take Malumbi out of that defensive midfield slot, but he took Yukoslu as well because when Peters got injured, I know we were one nil down at the time. But I still think, I still think definitely Steve Bruce, but I think probably 90% of managers would have gone like for like and brought Martin Kelly on. And he didn't. He's put Taylor Gardner-Hickman in there and he's dropped Yokoslu deeper. And suddenly you've gone from having a central midfield two of Malumbi and Yokoslu 10 minutes earlier to... Swift and Gardner Hickman. And it's a different, it's a completely different prospect. And for me, that decision from Carlos Corbran, because I think that it was always fairly, we were still in control of the game at that point, at the point Peters got injured. And I still believed we were going to equalize. But I think that decision, I think we would have drawn the game anyway if he brought Martin Kelly on at that point. But I think that decision to bring Taylor Gardner Hickman on doesn't get us, doesn't get us level. I think that's what wins us the game. And because because when we equalize we're then so on the front foot and there was only one team going to win it. At the, and I know they have a shout for a penalty just before uh, just before our goal. I'm sorry it's a dive like I'm, uh, it's not uh, it's not a not a penalty in a million years. So uh, they barely had a sniff second half. Diallo had a couple of nice runs at us, but there was only one team going to win it and for me the The difference-making moment came back to CC and one moment of really strong decision-making, really adventurous thinking of a player that I wasn't going to bring off has got to come off. I have a centre-half of types sat here, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is make my midfield more adventurous. And for me, that moment won us the game, Pete.
0: I think it was a really important decision, and it? gave us more stability in the middle in terms of controlling the ball. We might not have been so defensively sound as if we'd got Yacuzhlu in there, but Gardner-Hickman and Swift as the two is two players that are technically very good. Um, They can pass the ball, keep the ball in that way. And also with Gardner-Hickman, especially coming on in the 60th minute, whatever it is, he gives you that energy to, well, A, cover against... Counter attacks. If players are running in behind, you probably back him to be able to chase back and win the ball more than you'd back your Kuzlu. Um, B. He's got more energy to push forwards and win the ball back. Counter press. If we do lose the ball and keep c- control of the ball and control of the game, and C. Even just getting forward, it can be an option to to get forward, put crosses in, support that right right side of um, the right wing. Have more faith in him getting back in time as well. So I think it was a really important decision there. Um, It was probably a slight risk because, as I say, we're maybe slightly less defensively sound, but maybe not when you consider the the points I've just made. Um, But yeah, moving Jokushly back into centre-back, he was fine there for me. He's pretty solid, good in the air as he always is, which is important against Ellis Sims, who's excellent in the air and a really promising striker, one that I wish we'd looked into.
1: Um, I said this. I said this on Twitter to somebody, Pete. I mean, this comes back to Ian Pierce and what does he do, doesn't it? Because you look at him and the profile of him. He's big. He's strong. He's mobile. He's young. I mean, he's everything, and he and he can't he can't be costing them that much either, because he's you know he's a young lad on a on, on, from a Premier League club, um, and he hasn't cost a transfer fee. He might have cost a loan fee, but he hasn't cost a transfer fee. You know, where where were we on guys like this in the summer?
0: Yeah, I mean, last year I was running the data and looking for a striker for when um, we had Ishmael in charge in that summer, and he was one of the ones that, that came up um, because he's very good aerially, uh, can hold the ball up, gets into good goal-scoring positions, so he will score goals. Um, and he does, he presses well, does a lot of defensive work as well, so for the player that Ishmael would want, he seemed like a, a good fit and he just had an excellent season at Black Ball, I think, um, in League One and he seemed like a good fit. I think he was injured at the time, but um, obviously we signed Jordan Hugo. Um, you know, the less said the better there. But if you're looking for someone to play back up to DK, I think he would be an excellent player and would push him as well for first-team spots because he he's a very... Very promising young striker, and yeah, I'd be surprised if we didn't see him in the Premier League in in years to come.
1: Well, especially that as, as Everton haven't exactly got a, an abundance of striking options, especially as Calvert Lewin doesn't seem to be able to stay fit. Um uh, But the but the other frustrating thing is Pete that he's not he's not going to be the only one of that type out there. I mean, if we can sort our scouting network out, because we have got a good core to our squad, but we should be able to go out there and find the Diallo's who's, I believe he's from, he's, he's online from Manchester United, isn't he? Um, Ellis Sims, Harvey Barnes from back in the day. We, it is, it, it, it's, it's a fertile ground, isn't it? Um, Club under 21s teams. We, we've, We've got to sort our scouting network out to the point where we're 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 finding these players because I honestly think I mean you look at you look at the teams towards the top of the league most of them have one or two, two players from decent Premier League team under twenty ones in uh, in in their sides and Burnley have unsurprisingly got a couple and they've got uh, they've got um, Harwood Bellis the centre half from Manchester City and, uh, and 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 a couple of others like. If we actually had more knowledge, I think it's actually quite hard to get out this division without picking up one or two clever loans, don't you?
0: Yeah, and there's probably players within Premier League clubs that are maybe even, in fact, good enough to play for that club. It's just too big a risk for the manager of that club to to bring in a relatively untested um, 19, 20-year-old. So those clubs will not the players develop and be given or a they've chance. just got
1: expensive guys on long term contracts in front well, of them,
0: exactly, which is also why it's a, a big risk. Because if you, you know, you play the young, untested player ahead of this big superstar you've just signed and it doesn't work out, then it looks terrible. But yeah, these, these clubs they want the, their players to develop because obviously it increases the market value and gives them potential to move into the first team squad, etc. And if they are good enough to get into our team, then you know it's mutually beneficial to both to yeah to both clubs so if you've got the right scouting network and you know the right places to look and have the right contacts then it makes it so much easier well, to what's the
1: right relationships as well Pete because uh, because it's not i mean a, a lot of the time it's not enough to just show that you will give these players a home but it's uh, but but that you will help their development as well which means you've got to understand who the players are, what they are, what, you know, what they want to become, what the, what the club wants them, uh, wants them to become so that you can show that you are going to be good for these players, that you are going to make them into the type of player that that club wants them, wants them to be. And the only way you do this is through knowledge of the players, of the, the, the clubs, through their, of what their DNA, DNA is. But it's also about having an identity yourself as a club because you can almost, marry one club to another. I know people will say Vincent company's got some Manchester city young players in there because he's an ex Manchester city captain. And he obviously has a good relationship with Guardiola and that will entirely be a factor. But the other thing that's a factor is that Vinny company plays in a way that suits Manchester city young players developing because he plays a way that is similar to them. And we, we've got to understand what our style is going forward because then we can offer players at Premier League clubs who are a similar style to us a home. Because I'm telling you now, even with all his contacts at Manchester City, if any company was in there playing hoofball, playing Tony Pulis football, he would not be getting Manchester City players on loan from, from Pep Guardiola, would he?
0: No. And I wonder if that's why we didn't pick up any loan players in the summer because we maybe didn't have a, particularly defined style of play um that was seen as effective and yeah i mean the stuff that's going on behind the scenes as well i imagine other clubs will be reluctant to send players to a club that's potentially a going to be a mess and with our signings our recruitment it didn't seem too structured um so again it's a risk there. Well,
1: well also Steve Bruce doesn't have a particularly good record with with young players does he and uh, I mean the manager's got to be a factor there whereas conversely Carlos Corbran's got a very good, um, a, a, a good record with young players. You think back to, to last season, obviously he had uh, the young centre back from Chelsea. His name, um, his, his name escapes me, uh, for, Colwell. for a moment. Cole, thank you. You know, he, he's obviously brought Sorber Thomas through from non-league and, uh, and made him into, into a player. Um, you've got. O'Brien, who okay, he was he was making a name for himself, but um, already, but he he bounced around on loan for a little bit. I think he'd gone to Bradford or somewhere like that. Um, uh, Toffolo as well, who, who's who's gone on to Forest. He'd been on loan at Lincoln for a season, or might have even been two. I'm pretty sure he was there under Appleton. He he gave a home and developed these young players. I, I I'd like to think that if we have the scouting network to find these young players, that Premier League clubs will look at our manager and go, he's a good manager to send young players to.
0: Yeah, I think we're in a better way now than we were six months ago on that front. Um, but then it's also about having the right the right people in roles behind the scenes as well. I mean, obviously when you're learning players out, you have a loans manager who, you know, checks that everything's going fine with the loan and um that all that business is fine. But I imagine there's also people within the club that kind of help players that you've brought in on loan and, and signings as well to settle in. And um you've got to have coaches that are, are good with working with young players and developing them rather than just having coaches that just, you know, set up a team for a match day are good tactically but don't really develop players. So it's about getting all the right profiles getting all the right profiles in and um, that way you can obviously attract attract these young players because they're going to have lots of clubs looking for looking at them if they're a top young player so you've got to be the one that kind of stands out to them and you're kind of auditioning for the young player rather than I mean obviously there's the aspect of the other way around as well because you're An only audition in
1: the audition that we lost with Delap in the summer and I know we lost to his dad a little bit but Nonetheless,
0: yeah, I mean that's a a good example there. Um, Obviously, got three or four suitors, and we were one of them. Stoke were one of them, and he chose Stoke. I mean, you you don't know what the exact reasons were, but if you're really well set behind the scenes for bringing in and developing young players, then you're going to put yourself in a good in a good way to you know attract these young
1: players. Absolutely. Just going back uh, a little bit to, uh, to to what we were talking about before with the subs and how Corbrand changed the game. Does there need to be a little bit of a mindset change from some of the Albion fans when they look at the starting eleven, Pete, that and and say, "Oh, why is he not in? Why isn't he not in? Why is he not in?" We're in an era of five substitutions during a game. Corbran has shown that he is not only happy to change personnel, but he is also happy to change formation, change the the entire ethos of what we're doing mid game. Do we need to not really worry about who's starting? To be honest, it seems like what's more important now is who finishes a game, and that it's always it, that it's quite possible in games where. Um, Corbrand for whatever reason, thinks we might be outmatched in certain areas. And I would imagine that was a factor against Sunderland because he probably looked at a few things. First of all, the fact that they were a game ahead of us um, in terms of their fitness, but also the fact that they had Diallo and Pritchard, who I thought dominated the first half, and then we really got a hold of him second half. And he probably thought, Wh- whatever I do here, there is a danger of us being on the back foot a little bit. And also, I've got no centre-halves, really, other than Daro Shea, who actually I thought had a pretty shaky game, to be honest with you. Um, And I thought we missed Bartley in a big, big way. And he's probably thought, well, I'm going to start quite pragmatic here because due to circumstances, we're probably outmatched in more areas than I would like us to be. But I know I've got the tools on the bench to change it and be more adventurous if I need to be. Do we need to stop thinking in terms of starting 11s being the be-all and end-all and start appreciating more that managers can change things heavily in-game? We have got a manager who's happy to change things heavily in-game and that really the 11 that finished the game in many respects, in terms of winning a football match are going to be bigger than the 11 that start the game because the 11 that start the game are probably going to be, to a certain degree, unless it's a game where we are heavily the favourite, probably going to be a team to make sure that we are well in the game as it goes into the final third of the match. And at that point, the match winners come onto the field. Do you you think that is a mindset change that possibly needs to happen within the fan base about concerning themselves and, and thinking that, The manager favours players more if he starts them, whereas in actual fact, maybe he sees guys as match winners and would rather have them for a really powerful 30 minutes at the the end than flog them for 60 minutes and have to bring them off.
0: Yeah, there's probably an aspect of that. Um, And like I said, I think we want to set up to be solid solid first and then see what we can do later on. Um, I think what was promising with the substitutes was that they were relatively early I think the first one was in the 58th minute which you know I've been reading um, a book about you know football and data in it and it's called the numbers game by the way Um, and it basically talks about substitutions and how a lot of the time managers leave them too late in games because they kind of don't want to admit that they potentially got the starting lineup wrong um, and that the most effective time to make the first change I think was listed as the 57th, 58th minute, which is basically when we made it. Again, this study was before five substitutions. So if it was done again, it might be different. But the premise of it is that.
1: But managers, if anything, it's likely to be earlier because you're going to have more subs left.
0: Yeah. But the, yeah, I mean, the premise is that managers essentially often leave it too late, which isn't what Corbrand did. Um, he got Rogic on, on the 58th, and then the next one, I think, was in the 60 the 65th. Um, So he gave his substitutes time to get into the game and make a difference rather than just giving them five minutes at the end and expecting them to be able to come on and change a game.
1: And he also doesn't seem to think, oh, well, we, we've improved a little bit, so I'm not going to make my changes. He almost seems to have it premeditated that if a game is a certain way on 56, 57 minutes, that these are the changes I'm going to make to, uh, to, to alter it. As, as I say, Pete, I, th- I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that um Corbrand is going to set us up um defensively in every game. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that generally speaking, I think in an era where we have five substitutes available to us, I think people put far too much emphasis onto the onto the starting eleven.
0: I'd agree with that. Um you can change well you can change half your outfield players in the game. So it's a it's more of a score game than it than it used to be, arguably, because of those extra changes, players are going to have more time. The share of minutes is going to be spread out more, so players are going to get, players that maybe would previously have just been fringe players are going to get more minutes and be more involved and be more important to the overall season. Um, so, yeah, the, it's not as important what the starting lineup is because, I mean, at half-time, in the second half, you could have, half those players could be different. Obviously, it doesn't usually happen like that, but that's just kind of an exaggeration of what could happen it's yeah like i say it's it's more of a squad game than it was two or three years ago when it was just the three substitutions,
1: and one of those substitutes who made a huge, huge difference, Pete was uh, Tom Rockich, and I mean first of all. Let's just have a moment to talk about this goal. I'm to, I, I got a little bit excited when the goal went in. I admit that. And I tweeted, close goal of the season now. And then, uh, and then kind of my brain went, uh, you do remember Brandon Thomas Asante's bicycle kick against Stoke, don't you? Like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so I, uh, I, I immediately went on Twitter and, and did some hefty backpedaling at that, at that point. But I tell you what, Whether You can debate till the cows come home which one was better because they're so different. But I'm telling you now, it's up there. I mean, what a bit of skill to do that. First of all, the calmness. He's got no backlift to do it, yet it flies in the bottom corner. To just curl it round the defender, to leave the goalkeeper flat-footed with the outside of his boot like that, Pete. It's just... It's a disgusting finish, isn't it?
0: yeah, it was top quality. you can see why he's raved about so much by celtic fans. um it kind of, the way that he got to it is just it looked really strange on the eye the first time I saw it. I kind of didn't realize what exactly had happened because it was, I think it's because he took it on the outside of his foot, like his other foot wasn't planted where I expected it to be well, what
1: I- didn't help me, Pete, is that he didn't really celebrate. Uh, and genuinely, because I'm watching it on the TV and they immediately cut to Rogic who's just walking away cool as a cucumber and I'm thinking, has this been disallowed for something? I'm looking for an offside or something like that, because it was like he did not he was just like, yeah I do that every week
0: <laughs> yeah, It's like he'd just done it on the training ground or something but yeah, I mean it was a, a brilliant, brilliant finish you know, yeah it's just a, I mean it's a shame for him that Brandon Thomas Asante had scored that bicycle kick the week, well not the week forward but the game before because otherwise it'd definitely be be a tough one to beat for goal of the season
1: I still think it's competitive. I do. Honestly, I I know, I know a lot of people will say, Chris, you're talking absolute rubbish, although I've got to be honest, my friends, family, and anybody who knows me tell me that on a fairly regular basis. But I, I think it's competitive between the two. I might do, I might do a poll on the pod account as to what people, which one people think is better. And I'll I'll wait and see like 92% of the votes be for Brandon Thomas Asante and basically just me voting for Rogic. But there's something about it. I just, I just love it. It's the coolness it's it. It's a beautiful, beautiful finish. But just on Rogic, Pete, how big can the last four weeks be? How how big can the fact that he didn't go away and largely sit on the bench with Australia be for him? Because Celtic fans. Are quick to tell you what a brilliant, brilliant player he can be on his day. And uh, and those those are the three sort of chilling words that you get all the time about Tom Rogic. On his day, he's unplayable. But obviously the caveat being he doesn't have that day often enough. But if we've got him into almost given him a mini preseason that he was sadly lacking, because I thought I thought before we went away for the World Cup break. I, he was one of my biggest disappointments of the season because we, we actually did a podcast around the free transfers and both you and I sat there and highlighted him and went, if we can get him, that's an unbelievable signing because everything in the data suggested that he would be wonderful for us, that he's got great ability, that he scores goals, that he's, he, he, he's tall, he's got a presence, he can be a target. He got everything we wanted. And then what I saw from him, other than the occasional flash in the pan moment would been largely underwhelming, but he came on and he changed that game against against Sunderland. I thought he was I thought he was tremendous. I saw um, I saw one of the the Albion accounts actually do a poll for Man of the Match and include him, and I thought I wouldn't normally condone putting a player who, who'd, who'd had thirty odd minutes on on the pitch in a Man of the Match poll, but I could see the argument. Obviously, Wallace beats him hands down. There's no debate with that for me, but I could see why he was included as one of the four options. But if we've got into him the fitness that we need, Pete, what an asset he can be. Yeah,
0: he looks like he can be a terrific player. And the other benefit benefit of having him in the squad and in the starting eleven potentially is that you can then drop Swift deeper and have a, a better ball playing centre mid, which I've mentioned earlier. Um, kind of depends on, obviously, the game, the op- opponent and the... The game's state, Rogic is going to be a number 10, majority of the time he plays. So if he's playing there, then there's probably not as much room for Swift there unless you want to play him out on the left, which is, you know, where he tends to drift anyway. So it might give Swift to keep Swift in the team. You can drop him a bit deeper and, and that could be beneficial in, in games where you want to control the game from, from the midfield and pass the ball around a bit more securely.
1: And just last player we're going to talk about before I sort of like gen- uh, generally mop up here, Pete. But we've we've danced around him. We've mentioned him a little bit in dispatches, but Jed Wallace, Jed, Jed, Jed. Oh, I love him! What a player! What a player! Even when we even when we were poor in the first half, he was the best player. He was our best player by a country mile. And in the second half, he was nothing nothing short of brilliant. I mean, you can't quite give him two assists, unfortunately, because DK obviously lays the ball back, but it's his ball in. It's his ball for DK. So it's his ball in that leads to Rogic scoring. It's his ball in that, that is brilliant, brilliant ball for DK to score, score the winner. But so much more than that, Pete. He never stopped. He was whipping dangerous balls across the, the, the front of the six yard box in the first half. I just thought he was absolutely brilliant again and then not only is he brilliant on the football pitch but and we talked about this at the top of the podcast he then after the game goes and shows what a brilliant man he is as well with a beautiful tribute to the doc a, a lovely words about the 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 tragic incident in in Solihull and he just you know he's he's not he's not just a brilliant footballer he's a brilliant bloke and I know it sounds like I'm gushing I'm full on man crush I don't care what anyone says I just think he I just think he's I think he's brilliant for this football club and I'm so so glad he's our player. Yeah, he's looking like he's a,
0: a real top signer for the club because um, he is, like you say, on the pitch he's quality and and off the pitch as well. Um, his crossing is just unbelievable. I mean, he's pushing for the best crossover football that I've seen play for Albion, and you know that's a a big compliment when you're coming you up know against. You know, people, I've mate. got
1: Chris Brunt's number, and I will <laughs> tell I will, I will I will tell him to call you, mate. I, I can't. I I love Jed. I can't. But I'm going to. I'm so going to tell Brunty you've said that. <laughs> just,
0: well, so coming. I'm said coming close. So I'm not sure yet. But I mean, if he carries on like he is, then it's definitely a conversation that, that can be had. But, you know, he, he, he just seems to put them on a the plate every time and he's always aiming for someone. You get a lot of players that just, you know, put a lot of crosses in, but they're just crosses. With Wallace, he seems to be picking a spot every time and, and hitting that spot and it's being like the perfect spot. Like with Thomas DeSantis in the first half that he couldn't quite get to, that seemed like a the perfect place to cross the ball and with a different striker it gets put in. And obviously DK's goal.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: very, very, very good free signing.
1: Last point, Pete. Um, up to seventeenth, four wins on the spin. Do we dare look up the table yet, rather than down? I, I know, I know, I know. Some people are uh, th- throwing away the uh, throwing around the P and O words. I'm not going that far at this uh, at this point in time. But should we be? Casting our glance up the table to can we start getting in touch with the top half group rather than worrying about what your Wiggins and Hulls and Blackpools and and these sorts of teams should should be doing? Or are we we not that secure yet? Is there still a job to be done? And the fact that, you know, we've got Rotherham coming up at the weekend and uh, we've got an important job still to do in securing our status in this league before we can start venturing glances up the table. How how cautious or optimistic are you feeling at this point in time? I think I'm
0: feeling more optimistic, which is probably easy to say off the back of four wins, but I, th- yeah, I think we can start looking up a bit more, but also at the same time, you kind of just want to not really look anywhere and just see if we can carry on winning and then come back to it in a few weeks' time, because it is a pretty tight championship. Um, it doesn't take too many weeks of good form to see you jump up the table even just the past four games for us we've gone from bottom maybe into going up to I'm not sure where we are now but maybe 14th something like that so it's a big jump of places and
1: 17th at the moment ah
0: getting ahead of myself
1: <laughs> oh yeah I was going to say you you you'd leapt us up a little bit
0: but even so that's if we were bottom then you know that's that's seven places that we've moved in four weeks and you know it it, it is tight so It doesn't take too many weeks of of good performances and results to move you up the table. And we're still very early in the season. So I think there's definitely reasons to be positive and optimistic more so than the negative for me because we're playing well as well as getting results. So if we can continue doing that, then I think we will continue to, to move up the table. We'll just see how far up the table we can get with the time that we've got.
1: And nice to see a bit of resilience in this t- team. Just, ju- uh, just, just going to leave you with a stat, Pete, that, um, uh, that, that Ali Jones of the, um, uh, Action for Albion, uh, group, um, has very kindly just WhatsApp me whilst, whilst we've been, been recording. Um, that is the first time that we have come back from behind to win a game since the QPR home game under Valerian Ishmael, which is a total of 55 games since we last did that. I mean, if he's changed this team to the point where we're now resilient, that that's that's a heck of an achievement, isn't it? Yeah,
0: wow. Um, incredible stat. And it looks even worse when you put it alongside the one we mentioned earlier about conceding first in games under Bruce because obviously we've not been able to to come back once we have conceded first and that was happening a lot. So if we've got a bit of resilience in the players and they've got they start to show that they can make comebacks. Um, you know that's that's really promising, and not only for individual games, but if we move into a little rot of results and you know lose a few on the on the bounce, um, then if they are showing those signs of resilience, you've got a bit more faith in them turning it round, turning it round quicker.
1: Absolutely. Well, we will leave it there for today. Uh, I mean, we could, we could carry on talking Albion because we haven't had the opportunity to do so for, for four weeks. And frankly, when we're in the middle of a, middle of a good run. You do want to talk about it, especially as it, it, it distracts you from the, uh, from the fact that we're, we're recording on, on Tuesday night. The World Cup semi-finals are about to, uh, about to kick off and, um, uh, certain three lions aren't involved in either game. So uh, it, 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 it distracts you from that reality, which is also very nice. But we will be back after the Rotherham game, uh, at the weekend when, Hopefully, Pete, it's, uh, it, 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 it's a high five. It's, uh, it's, a it's a famous five. It's, uh, no, I'm going to stop now because uh, I'm, I'm referencing en- Enid Blyton books, which is starting to show my age, but, uh, we will be back after the Rotherham game to discuss it more. Then obviously, uh, if you want to talk to us about anything, um, you can tweet the pod account, uh, at Albion analysis. Um, but as ever, thanks for listening and. Up the Baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNuggets share box. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app.